Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be reviewing, let's see if I can get it pulled up here, add to stream this guy. His uh, name is Hope Under Fire. I don't know his real name. He's just a guy and uh, he seems to have a pretty nice setup. He might have a lot of friends. He's got 126 views on his video. And so uh, maybe, I don't know, it could be a popular guy. I don't actually know. This was just a video that was shared with me. And uh, he, he covers Exodus 32 because he's been interacting with a friend of his who's an open theist. And uh, he has some concerns about open theism. So we're going to hear him out and see how he handles Exodus 32. So I'm just going to go ahead and hit play. Fire. Uh, so I wanted to do this video for a while now, um, but... I didn't really get time and I wanted to have a conversation with a friend of mine before I posted it. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to, to make that happen. So I'm going to post it. I am going to preface this. This is sort of a response. So yeah, he, he, he does seem like an articulate man. Uh, I do like his setup. I like his bookshelves very much. It looks like he got into a, uh, the corner of a room and set up his uh, camera. So it's uh, shooting uh, diagonally across the room, probably giving him more space to shoot. Pretty good lighting. I don't know. Charismatic guy. I, I I could see why people seem to like this guy. I don't know. Aunt's video um, to something a friend of mine put out. Uh, I want to make it clear. He and I disagree on certain points of doctrine, but I respect this uh, friend of mine, and this is not an attack on him. Um, but I do want to debate the theology underpinning our two views. Do you? This kind of came back to light because this past um, Sunday, in adult Sunday school, we were in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 through 3. And in that, we, of course, run into the elect according to the foreknowledge of God passage. So that sparked some discussion in the classroom about <clears throat> predestination, foreknowledge, free will, all that sort of stuff that obviously comes with those passages. That's kind of the subject matter we're going to be discussing today again um, from actually the Old Testament. So a friend of mine posted an um, article, and he actually took an open theistic model. So he, he approached it from an open theistic model, um, seeking to look at a passage and, and say, this actually supports open theism. And so we talked back and forth a little bit about it, but we really didn't get to go deep into it like I had hoped we could have before this. But because of that, I wanted to relook at this passage and maybe bring a few things to light. So this is going to be in Exodus uh, chapter 32. So Exodus chapter 32. So uh, it, it's interesting. His open theist friend discussed with him Exodus 32. Again, as I've, I've said before, Exodus 32 is the open theist's best friend, best proof text, because that is a, it's a very solid historical event that has a lot of future commentators within the Bible looking back and describing the situation. And every single one of them agrees with the face value reading of it, that that's what's going on, that Moses is convincing God to do an action through argumentation, and God listens to his arguments and responds to his arguments and changes his mind because of what which arguments were made. The, the Bible's unanimous, unanimous in in this uh, 
in this voice of what Exodus 32, what's happening within Exodus 32. And so these people, closed theists, classical theists, have to come to this text and they they struggle uh, very deeply with it. And so you're, you're going to see him struggle with the text tonight, uh, try to reframe the text, not look at the details of the text, and just present a, a, a reframing. He, he's he's pre presenting a counter-narrative without actually looking at the details. Now, he does read it all, but he doesn't actually cover the details. And we're going to really just focus on verses 7 through 14 um, for the sake of time. Uh, I challenge you to go back and read you know, the whole chapter um, and stuff leading up to it and everything else. But this is where Moses goes up on. So wa watch for this type of tactics in normal sermons. If you read a verse and then, then just talk a bunch, then apparently you just talked about that verse and explained that verse. And just make sure there's not a disconnect between what the verse actually says and a paragraph explaining the verse. Unto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, of course, the Israelites decide he's taken too long. We're bored. We want gods to worship Aaron. Let's make some gods and worship these fake gods. So they do that. Okay, so this is happening. That's the background. Verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf. They have worshipped it, and have sanctified thereof, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath... God has seen this people. Yeah, so God's acquiring information. He's watching these people. And then he gets he builds up wrath within the text. Again, he doesn't actually... I've, I've watched through this video, and I've commented on this video. He doesn't actually go through the text and explain what each turn of phrase means and, and what the motivations are in the actions. It's just a complete reframing. It's a basically, this text doesn't mean what it says because we have this framing device over here. May wax hot against them and that I may consume them and that I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord, and this is the key part of this hall. And Moses besought the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say for me? Yeah, Robert writes, uh, is this part true? Were they doing something else maybe? and just characterized that way, like anthropomorphisms? It's a, it's a facetious comment. Yeah, either the text has some sort of meaning that's of value or it's not. And the, the primary question we need to ask ourselves as biblical scholars is what did the original text mean to the original audience? Was this a false narrative? And he actually does a lot of good talking points. Like he'll, he'll say things like, God is the hero of the story. Yep, we agree totally. But then in his mind, what that means is, um, God doesn't have a character arc in any of the stories anywhere because be, because we think God's a hero. He's uh, Gary Stu. Gary Stu is uh, a character in fiction in which typically they're self-insert characters. It's like if 
if you're an author and you're writing a book and then you just write someone without flaws, basically you're writing yourself into the story, like what you would do. And, and there, there's no obstacles to overcome. You're instantly good at everything. The new Star Wars uh, Ray person is a good example of a Mary Sue, a, a female version of a Gary Stu. And so what he wants to do is he wants to read, read the Bible and he sees this character, God. And God in the Bible has a character, he has a personality, he has a temperament, he has goals that he wants to achieve, he has value systems, uh, he has has to make trade-offs within the text of the Bible. And so he wants to negate all those things. God has to be a Gary Stu. God can't have character development within the text, or else in his mind, God is not the hero. You're, you're going to hear it come, come out. We're not quite there yet, but uh, just just priming you, I guess mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth turn from this fear wrath and repent of this evil against thy people remember abraham isaac and israel thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own name thyself and said unto them i will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and all this land that i have spoken of will <clears throat> spoken of will i give to your seed and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil, which he thought to do unto his people. So the perspective here is key. The, the title of this little talk is the unknowing God or the ever merciful savior, the unknowing God or the ever merciful. Savior. So look, look at that framing device. So open theists, in his framing device, open theists see this as a passage primarily about God being unknowing. That's that's not how open theists see this text. That's that's a side issue. The Bible is not about God's knowledge. Again, like Isaiah 40 through 48 is not about if God has knowledge or if God doesn't have knowledge. It's about something else. But you, you can look at clues in the text to see what attributes they ascribe to Yahweh, God within the Bible. And uh, just because the passage isn't about omniscience, what God knows and what God doesn't know, doesn't mean we can't get insights into their theology at that time. So his framing is open theists see this as a text primarily about God doesn't know something. That's not at all. That's not at all what open theists claim. But the question still uh, arises, it, it's demanded, did these events happen as described or not? It's like one or the other. So you, you could just say, yes, these events happened, or no, this is just like baby talk, like John Calvin said. And John Calvin said, this is just condescending talk. It didn't actually happen like this. This is for our limited understandings. It's it's symbolic. It, it doesn't it doesn't actually give us meaningful information. You know, th those those are your options. Either you have to wish it away, you have to get some sort of device to say the text doesn't mean what it says, or you can say, yeah, this. The events happened as described. Savior. So what do we do with this passage? Let's talk about the passage just in general for now, because there is some issues here. We know from the Bible, um, from 1 Samuel 15, 29. Yeah, watch this language. So in the comments and to the side, I said he's proof texting. He said, we know from 1 Samuel 15, let's see what we know from 1 Samuel 15. He said he wasn't proof texting. That God does not repent or lie, and he's not a man that he should repent. Yet here clearly stated in verse 14, it says, and the Lord repented. 
So now we got an issue, right? The Bible clearly states God doesn't repent. The Bible clearly states that God doesn't repent. So here, there's, there's a lot of problems here. First of all, it doesn't clearly state that. There's a character in a narrative within 1 Samuel 15 that states God doesn't repent. But what's the context? What does he mean by that? Those are secondary. The Bible's not stating that. That's a character in the text. And within 1 Samuel 15, you get two other statements, one from God and one from the narrator. And uh, is God wrong? Is, is the narrator wrong within the Bible? The narrator is given some sort of omniscient position within the text. I think we went over this when we talked about, there, there's a book about film and the Bible and understanding uh, the Bible through understanding film. The narrator gets an omniscient perspective. And so the narrator is not going to be wrong and God is not going to be wrong in the text either. Characters can and have been wrong in the text. For example, Job's wife he says, curse God and die. You know, characters can be wrong. They can give bad advice. They're just characters. They're fallible beings. Who is infallible is God and the narrator. And so you don't you don't prioritize character texts above God and the narrator. And what does Samuel actually mean? If you look at the context, it looks like it's very much limited to context. Like, for example, with when the Bible says, you knew all things perfectly from the beginning. And this is uh, Luke talking to us as Christians or his his reader, or the Bible says King David knows all things, or if the if if uh, the New Testament says that we are enlightened by the Spirit and know all things, it's limited by context. There, there's a context there that the all things is limited to. And Samuel within 1 Samuel 15 is telling Saul literally that God is not going to repent of what? God has already repented of making you king, and he's not going to repent and give you back kingship. He's not going to repent of repenting. That's the immediate context of what's going on there. But he needs a proof text. He needs it to override this other text. Is, is 1 Samuel 15, is that a commentary on Exodus 32? It's not a commentary on Exodus 32. It's, it's not looking back and recounting the story. It's just another story somewhere else in the Bible that he could pull a little phrase out of and use it as a controlling narrative for this unrelated story in Exodus 32. This is classic proof texting. And again, uh, when I confronted him about this, he said, oh, I'm not proof texting. I'm just framing. Yeah, that's that's what proof texting is. You're, you're just grabbing a little phrase out of its context and trying to use it to control another text. That's proof texting. That's an invalid way to read the Bible. And so, uh, and the, the problem is your proof text in context doesn't even mean what you claim of that. And he also had a first Peter uh, phrase about there's no shadow of turning within God. And within that context, also, it's talking about God's blessing. It's kind of like Malachi 3, where God says that uh, he, he doesn't change. Well, well, in what way doesn't he change? Because the very next verse says, if you respond to me, I'll respond to you. So it's not talking about absolute metaphysical, he can't change, he has this property known as immutability. He's actually in context talking about his promise to Israel. He remains faithful to his promise to Israel, even though they are faithless. God doesn't change in his promises to Israel. And so context is very important. And so it's doubly invalid. Number one, the stories have nothing to do with each other. Using one as a commentary on another, even though it's not even 
it was written at a different time, in a different place, a different context, and not even referencing that first story. Using it as a commentary on that first story is completely invalid. It's an invalid hermeneutic. The people who are doing that are not being genuine with the text. They're looking for proof text. They're looking for something to explain away a difficulty they find in the Bible. Classic proof texting. It doesn't lie. And yet verse 14 says, God repented. So we have an issue. What do, what do we do with this? Okay, so that's one issue. The next issue is that God is going to do something, and it seems like Moses prays and God stops. He changes his mind. He Yeah, it does seem like that. It's, it's, it, it literally says that, uh, that God did not do what he said he would do, which is a common phrase within the Bible. God says he's going to do something and doesn't do it. God thought he was going to do something. I, th I think actually it's the ESV that actually translates that passage as God did not do what he thought he was going to do. One of the translations actually gives it that translation. And that that's fairly accurate. God saying he's going to do something and thinking he's going to do something are fairly similar concepts. And so it is a valid translation. So very easily, this passage is talking about God not doing something that God thought he was going to do. God thought he was going to do it. Moses persuades him otherwise. What's happening in this? What is this interaction taking place? Is this just a facade by God? Is it just play acting to try to get Moses? This is this is what I hear from Christians. Uh, I gave a presentation at college actually on this passage, and the girl's like, "Well, he could have just been saying that for Moses's sake." And I said, "Yeah, that would make him a liar, which is fine. That's a possibility that we we can't examine in the text. Maybe God's just lying. The only way God's not a liar." Um, is if he actually means what he says when, when he's saying those things, or else it's just lying manipulation. Pence. That's another issue. How is it that God would not do something he was going to do? And it seems that human agents were involved in this. That's another uh, difficulty here. So people look at this passage and they see some of these difficulties, and they may see a few more as well. <clears throat> that God promised to make a, a, a nation out of Israel, and yet he's going to maybe destroy them. He's going to destroy the tribes that he promised to withhold. Um, but if he never... Yeah, Roddy makes a good point that uh, repentance does, does not mean... A lot of times within Christian cultures, we attribute repentance with repentance of, a, of sin. They're they are interrelated concepts, and people say, repent. And what they mean is, stop doing evil. That's not how the word is being used within the Old Testament. When the, when the King James translates uh, nakam, when they translate it as repent, it's, it's, not, it's not repenting of your sins. It's, it's a change of mind. You are thinking of, you're going this way, and then you go this way instead. You're thinking one thing, you change your mind, and go a different way instead. It's Nakam. It, there's, there's a regret involved. God regretted making man. There's, there's emotion involved. Regret. There's a turning away. It doesn't necessitate sin. It's, it's not about sin. So uh, maybe, maybe that's one thing that I might actually, uh, I could probably do better explaining that to people because repentance is so ingrained in Christians' minds that they, they can't fathom the concept of God repenting because they, they, they equate that to repentance from sin, which is not the case at all. A change of mind is repentance. That's what the word means. Intended it. Is he lying? Is he being untruthful? So there's a lot of different uh, nuanced 
issues here. So people obviously look at this passage and they try to solve it. How do we fix this? How do we save the Bible? How do we save God? Number one, that's probably the wrong perspective. If I'm looking at a Bible passage to figure out how do I save God, I probably have the wrong perspective. I probably missed something. Okay, so he's absolutely correct here. But uh, are you guilty of going to this passage and trying to save God? Open Theus, we don't go around looking and say, oh, we need to find times God made mistakes. And we want to we want to shout to the roof, oh, this was a mistake God made. It's, that's not that's not our goal in reading it. We don't care. Uh, we're, we're perfectly fine with uh, prophecies and prophecy fulfillment. And we cheer it on and we say God is powerful and capable and great. But look at these instances within the Bible in which things don't turn out as God expected. It's just it just happens sometimes. It's it's not the default. It's it doesn't happen often. But one example of God not knowing the future shows that God doesn't have this exhaustive, ungenerated, eternal, non-discursive knowledge of the future. But you're going to see what he tries to do here. He wants to make this a passage about God's relationality, which only actually exists in open theism. What is relationality? It's taking outside input, processing that input, and turning that into output. That's what a relationship is. Relationships are not omnidirectional. It's a, it's, it's the, relationships are not one-way streets. Relationships take give and take. And that's what uh, is required of God in open theism, a give and take type of relationship where God can change. In a system in which God can't change and has all knowledge and the knowledge is non-discursive and he doesn't take output from outside himself, that's not a relational God. That's not a God that we find in the text. So if this text, I'm going to throw this out there, if this text is about God and his relationality with man, it's an open theist proof text regardless, regardless if God repents or not in the text. That's that's irrelevant. If God is responding to input from outside himself, this text is teaching open theism. I, and this is something that really needs to be stressed because people think the whole debate is about whether or not God just knows all things in the future. It's not. They have a very particular understanding of how God's knowledge works and showing them that they're denying classical omniscience, showing them that relationality requires open theism that probably can get through to them, jolt them awake, something that they haven't considered because they have a prima facie, they have a face value outlook about Christianity, a, a false idea of what the teachings are, a false idea of what omniscience means, a false idea about what immutability means. We need to tell them what their theology actually teaches, and then maybe they'll get the red pill. They'll wake up a little bit and understand that what they're teaching is definitely against the Bible. Anytime they're teaching that God learns, that God processes, that God thinks, that God has relationship, that God uh, has input from our prayers, that God responds to prayers. If God responds to prayers, open theism is true. Only in open theism does God actually respond. This is true on face value. To have a response, you have to gain outside input in order to process it and then respond. It's, it's part of the word. That's what it means. So let's ask ourselves this. What is going on here and why is it here? Yeah, why We're is it here? We're going to do a little um, blue-collar theology. 
what we'll call blue collar theology. Basically means theology that just makes sense. Let's get rid of all the big words. Let's get rid of all the big tricky things. And let's just focus back on what do we know about the Bible? What do we know about God that could help us understand this? Now, I love blue collar theology. Blue collar theology really screams to me, um, wild at heart. Wild at heart by... Uh, uh, Elridge, Jonathan Elridge, Jonathan Elridge, uh, Elridge, Elridge wrote the book wild at heart. It's about God's masculinity, teaching your boys to be masculine, loving and taking risks. This is blue collar theology, understanding that God is loving relational. God is a father figure. God interacts with us. He responds to prayer. He cares about us. He hurts with us. When we hurt, God hurts with us. This is blue collar theology and all of it is open theism. Uh, once you get outside the realm of open theism, then you're getting into this weird abstract world of absolutes. God is a singularity. God doesn't respond. God is immutable. God can't receive output from outside himself. God is uh, perfectly simple. God is incomprehensible. God has no predicates. Imagine th this is not blue collar theology. This is this weird world of platonic abstracts that we don't have we don't have any experience with this in the real world. We have experience with fathers. We have experience with relationships. We have experiences with praying and making, even making bargains with God. Your child is sick. You might pray to God and say, hey, God, if you heal him, I'll go do this. I'll go help out at this, um, you know, uh, help foster kids, things like that. This That's blue collar theology. God is relational. We can engage with God and God will respond to us. But uh, he has... Uh, a quasi blue collar theology. His quasi blue collar theology is forget all those fancy words. We're right regardless. Passage a little bit and what's going on in here. <clears throat> one thing that is reoccurring in my life, one um, idea that just keeps coming up is he. Yeah, David writes his right angle bookshelf game is fire. Yeah, I don't know if I would offset it just a little bit so that there's more asymmetry, but it does look like the books themselves, because of the different patterns, creates enough asymmetry that it doesn't look too awkward. And it, it kind of actually focuses your view when you look at the picture. Uh, he's in the center and it draws your eyes. And so I think it was Drew McLeod who said that uh, he didn't even notice the bookshelves to begin with. I think that's what he was talking about, that he didn't notice the bookshelves because it just draws your eyes in. And so this this is a nice setup. Uh, he does have some aesthetic tastes, aesthetically pleasing tastes. And so I do got to credit the man. I do like his haircut too. The idea it, more in the martial arts community is that techniques will get you killed. It's principles that'll save your life. So what that means is you can train any martial art in the world. Um, you could train even Krav Maga, which is one of the, the ones I train, which is supposed to be this big, bad um, self-defense martial art. But guess what? If you take martial arts or if you take Krav Maga out onto the streets in a real violent encounter, you likely will die. And that pains me to say, as somebody who practices this and even teaches this to other people, that if you just take the techniques from Krav and apply them out in a violent situation, you likely will end up dead. Because techniques are useless without the principles that underpin them. Yeah, so what are the techniques that he is going to champion here? It's not going to be reading comprehension, literary criticism, and uh, trying to understand texts in context. It's not that. He's going to replace it with uh, a techniques that we are 
not familiar with as competent readers. These, these are not sixth grade reading comprehension techniques. These are, these are these weird abstract techniques that you only find in theology, proof text trumping. That's what we're going to get. When we look at any passage of scripture, we often look at the little details trying to prove our own point. So for my friend with an open theist perspective, you look at this and you see open theism. If you're a Calvinist, you look at this and you see Calvinism. If you're an uh, Arminianist, you look at this and you see Arminius. If you're a Molinist, you look at this, you see Molinism. Every and so I asked this guy, I said, what would uh, someone without biblical training, never heard of the Bible, if they come to this passage and read it, what would they say about it? Because he just told us that um, we're, we're all biased and we just all read whatever we want in the text. Well, what about an unbiased person? What about someone who doesn't have a dog in fight, who doesn't care? What position are they going to walk away with? Is, is that worth considering? Is it worth stepping back and saying, hey, what about someone who, who doesn't have these presum presumptions, these presuppositions? What do they read in the text? If, if it's a neutral viewer, they don't care. What are they reading? If they're reading open theism and they're not reading Molinism or Calvinism, uh, you got a problem. You got a problem because that means that's the default reading. That's the default reading. It's that uh, 10 people in the mall trick that I talk about. If, if you if you go to 10 people in the mall, just random people, and have them read the passage and say, okay, now describe this figure, God, uh, what are some of his properties that are described here, characteristics? Uh, is anyone going to say Calvinism? Is anyone going to describe Molinism? No, they're going to be like, well, yeah, God's going to destroy these guys, but then he's convinced otherwise. That's going to be your typical response. Typical response, probably more than your any other response, if you're going to categorize them all. If you're going to categorize them, open theism, Calvinism, Molinism, typical Arminianism, they're, they're probably mostly going to fall in the open theist camp, unless, unless they're already Christians and they want to impose, like he was talking about, their ideas about God. The neutral people, I contend, are going to be the open theists. Every single perspective can look at this passage and read their perspective. Jeff writes, I had no dog in the fight uh, before he came to open theism, uh, before I knew there was even such thing as open theism. Yeah, what what does the default reading suggest? That That is the question that I care about. Uh, what's, what's, what's the secular scholarship say about who Yahweh was within the Bible. And I quoted to him, Christine Hayes. And he's like, I never heard of her. I'm like, yeah, this, this is, this is a secular scholar who, who, who reads this and, and God has a character arc. God is the hero of the story. God has a character arc. God grows, God develops, God learns about man. God interacts with man. There's, there's gives and takes within the text. These are, these are real texts. And this, this is their view of God. I oh, didn't really care about that. I also presented him, uh, Amanda McInnes's cheese wearing theology blog post, which uh, might not exist on the internet anymore, but I, I screen capped it a long time ago. But she talks about this passage in particular and how she was at seminary and a non-open theist got up to try to explain, try to proof text using this verse uh, in 1 Samuel 15 that he already referenced trying to use it as a proof text to say that God does not change. But a different Old Testament scholar stood up and explained everything I explained, that within the Bible, the narrator and God, they take precedence over characters in the text. Characters can and will be wrong. Um, maybe maybe I got to pull it up. Maybe I'll just read it off of uh, Facebook because that's probably going to be a lot, a lot easier than uh, actually finding that actual blog post.
I'll find that real quick, but uh, we'll let them play out a little bit more while I find that perspective into it. But what should we be doing when we read this? My challenge is that we read the Bible and let the Bible decide. So uh, there's a really, really good sermon. Again, I, I don't agree necessarily with everything um, this man teaches and stands for, but it's uh, Matt Chandler, and he preaches. All right, so Amanda McInnes, this this is her blog post that she wrote, and it's it was a shocking moment for her. It's, it's one that kind of red-pilled her to open theism. He, she says, a well-respected Old Testament scholar stood up in response to this, use it one, 1 Samuel 15 being used as a proof text, and called the presenter out on his proof. In 1 Samuel 15, there are three statements. God says, I am grieved, I repent, that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. 1 Samuel 15, 11, Samuel the prophet says, uh, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29, and the narrator says, And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. 1 Samuel 15, 35, that's the same word that being used there, repent. The Old Testament scholar then called the presenter out on hermeneutics 101. Who is to be trusted most? God, the narrator, a character in the narrative? Answer, God and the narrator are always right. Characters can and do lie. Then he pointed out that Samuel's God does not change his mind or lie is in reference to Saul's pleading. God has changed his mind about Saul being king, but he won't change it back. The presenter hemmed in hawed and blustered. The entire room knew that the Old Testament scholar was right. In a later context, the presenter would accuse the Old Testament scholar of being an open theist sympathizer. Gasp! The horror! And there I sat, an innocent theology student, shocked and stunned. How could the presenter not know this? How could the presenter talk about the integrity of scripture and yet blatantly proof text? This is a person with a PhD. This is a professor. And what this, this shows us on multiple levels is that even these people with degrees, you think they're not pundits? They are pundits. They get their degrees and they use the degrees to bolster their punditry. They mistreat the text purposely. They, they don't apply critical thinking to what they're claiming. They're going to proof text because they're presenting a narrative. They're trying to structure a narrative. They want the audience to believe a narrative, and they can't actually uh, respond to the criticism of their proof texting. All it takes is one person to stand up and point out uh, where they're going uh, wrong, and they don't know how to answer. They don't know how to respond to this. It's a sermon that's a really good sermon um, called God is for God, and I would challenge you to look at so PTI Douglas says, Matt Chandler is in Dallas, Texas, where I am. He's a fan of John Piper. Yeah, I don't know about being a fan of John Piper, if that's a good thing to be. But Matt Chandler, I think, actually does a pretty good job on what the word foreknown means. I think it, it was one of his sermons where he, he makes the argument that this, this understanding of foreknowledge is not about having intellectual um, propositional knowledge about future events. It's actually, it's actually about relationships. So when the Jews foreknew Paul, um, it's, it's not his example, it's my example. When the Jews foreknew Paul, that means previously in life they were acquainted with him and they got to know him and they knew things about him. When God foreknows people within the Bible, that means he's had a prior relationship with them. These people are not, not existing yet when he foreknows them. He foreknows them within their own lifetime and that's when he foreknows them.
it up on YouTube. It's called God is for God by Matt Chandler. And he, he is a, a more Calvinistic leaning than I would um, like personally, but he, that one message has a principle, an underlying principle that I think we need to grasp as humans. And that is that God is jealous for his honor, glory, and worship. He Yes. So what does that entail? God's jealousy. Is jealousy an emotion? Is jealousy an emotion that is predicated, dependent on the actions of creatures outside himself? For God to be a jealous God, he has to have outside stimuli. There, there has to be something outside himself giving him some sort of information, some sort of sensory input, some sort of some sort of uh, processing ability, and he has to process that, and it's an emotional state that is caused as a result of that. So look at look at what's going on there. This is open theism. If God takes input from outside himself, processes that processes that input, and turns it into output, that's open theism. God is gaining from outside himself. Open theism. If God is relational, if God has emotions, if God has jealousy, if God is a jealous God. Open theism is true. If God is not impassable, impassibility is a classical attribute. God cannot be affected from outside himself. Because remember how classical classical omniscience works even, that God has immediate, unmitigated access to all propositional knowledge known in one single event. This is non-discursive knowledge. This is innate knowledge. This is knowledge that's, that's not dependent on outside sources. If God is a jealous God, Open theism is true. So for him to say that this this passage is not teaching open theism because the point of the passage is that God is a jealous God, I would say wrong on the first part, correct on the second part. The second part means open theism is true. This is a passage about jealousy. Yes, that's the primary purpose of this passage. The entire purpose of the Bible is to teach us who Yahweh is, his temperament, his character, his personality, as opposed to who? false gods that Israel had access to and they could turn to. They could turn away from God. And so the Bible is is a story about who God is, who the true God is, rather than the false gods. This is an accurate picture of who they're trying to tell Israel God is. God is a jealous God. God has emotions. God has a personality. God has a value set. God values interaction with people. God values having a people to himself. And within the text itself, I don't. He doesn't get there. But within the text itself, in Exodus 32, he already read it. God changes his mind because of public perception and doesn't want to be perceived by pagan nations as an evil death cult god. This is the explicit reason that's reiterated within the Bible why God changes his mind in this particular passage because God has a value set, a value set that's derived from things outside himself. That's dependent on and got God's uh, utility or or the joy God gets or or the anger God gets or the wrath as described within Exodus 32. All of that is dependent on agents outside of God. It's dependent on a- outside actors, people at Israel in this case, people outside of God is giving him some sort of input which he processes and deals with emotionally. This is open theism. This is actually what we're up against. The blue-collar reading of this, the blue-collar reading that God is jealous, is in fact open theism. All this uh, God is a singularity stuff um, is not blue-collar theology. 
I, you can't pretend this is a text about God as a singularity and then also claim it's a text about God's, God's jealousy. He will share it with no one. And when we look at this passage here in Exodus, what is literally occurring at yeah. the time of this? He's literally giving Moses the Ten Commandments. And what are the first several commandments in there? God is not to be, God is to be the only God to be. Because God cares about our actions, creatures outside himself. God gains benefit or detriment from his creation. Open theism is true. Uh, first commandment. First commandment means open theism is true. You worship. You have no other gods before me. You won't share my honor, my glory, or my worship. Because God values, God values the worship of his creation. God values the worship of his people. God gains value from outside himself. Open theism is true. The Ten Commandments, open theism is true. At least the, the commandments about God that are focused on who God is and what God values means open theism is true. God values things outside himself. With anyone, it's... Notice that, that if God values things outside himself, that uh, d dispels any notion of aseity or being pure actuality or uh, this, this, this pure simplicity that is God is violated if God gains from outside himself, gains emotional gratification, gains happiness, gains emotion from outside himself. All these things are false. Classical theism is false if God responds to anything. Mine. Don't you dare give it to anyone else. It's literally what's happening at the beginning of this passage. If God is for God and this book is about God, then maybe God needs to be our focus. And so in my yeah. in my school stuff, I, we're going through the Pentateuch right now in one of my classes. And uh, so I won't take credit for this phrase, but it goes along that same lines. He, The professor states, <clears throat> when you go to these Old Testament narrative portions of Bible, number one, we know this, and, and this is outside of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us why Exodus is here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that these things happened to the Jews and were recorded so that we, the church, the, the body of Christ, would see the evil things that they lusted after, and we would be able to see those examples and not do it. What do we do in church all the time in Sunday school? We teach kids the stories from the Old Testament to show them what you ought not do, but then to show them what God does in response. Yeah, but we, it's also it's also a text about prayer and intercessory prayer and God's temperament and how God responds to us. And so, yeah, the text is about God, 100%, but the text also is about Israel's rebellion, correct. That's 100% correct as well. But time and time again, the effectiveness, the the... Uh, what's it? What's a good word? The how well prayer works and functions. The propensity of prayer to move God is highlighted within the text, and we we can't just discount that as one of the themes, a sub theme, if you will, within the book of Exodus. Yeah, there, there are primary themes. The primary theme, not no open theist should ever say the primary theme of Exodus thirty-two is to teach people that. God doesn't know things about that. It's not about that. It's not about God's knowledge, what God knows and what God doesn't know. It's about who God is, God's character, God's temperament, how God acted previously. Israel, uh, illustrating what not to do with Israel. 
illustrating how to be a solid leader, illustrating what someone can do with God and how someone can interact with God. These these are things that the text is teaching us. There's subtopics, yeah, but there's still topics. We don't just don't discount them. So what what my colleague? Yeah, talking about that real quick. It it seems like he what he's doing is he thinks that if he he says something and then talks a bunch, that means open theism is false and his views are true. So what if he, what has he actually said that makes open theism false? He said that this this is a text about God's jealousy. Yeah, that means open theism is true. So that doesn't mean open theism is false. That means open theism is true. You're, you're just affirming open theism when you say this. He, he's saying that uh, the text is about God. Yeah, it's about God. That means open theism is true and uh, not your theology, the opposite. But he, he's playing this off as I, I talked to a paragraph about this text. Therefore, my belief is true. And since this is a mini sermon about open theism, that means open theism is false. It doesn't work like that. He hasn't he hasn't quite said anything open theists disagree with yet. He he hasn't he hasn't shown why open theism is wrong. And I, I suspect that's because he has very limited interaction with open theism. He just doesn't understand what open theism uh, understands, what open theism teaches, uh, the nuances in various views of open theism, how open theism deals with his proof texts, and he's he's never heard these arguments before. He's never heard uh, the argument that if God is a jealous God, open theism is true. Guaranteed, he's never heard that. But he, he's talking authoritatively on the subject as if he does. All the professor was saying is that when you read these Old Testament narratives, always keep in mind, and this is that blue-collar theology, very simple principle, God is always the hero in any story, never a man. Okay, so let's let's uh, is it, first of all, is that a claim that uh, the Bible makes that God is the hero in every story? It's it's doubtful, and so it could be argued that within Job, he's not quite the hero in that story, because um, he he does allow Job to be tortured pretty badly, and then he leaves him hanging, and uh, at, only at the end kind of makes up for it. God God is a participant in the story. He might not be the hero of the story, but let's. Let's just grant him that. God is always the hero. This is not a claim that the Bible makes, that God's the hero in every story. But we'll just grant that. Does that mean that open theism is false if you read Exodus 32? So, okay, so God is always a hero, granted. We read Exodus 32. Oh, since God is the hero, open theism is false. It, it, it doesn't follow. It doesn't follow. What, what's, what's his idea? If, if God actually destroyed Israel and made a new nation through... Moses, then he wouldn't be the hero. Is is that the claim? If if God has a change of mind, then God wouldn't be the hero. I actually point out that heroes, it's in the comments. Heroes typically have character arcs. Uh, it's a very boring story, as we talked about. It's a Gary Stew or a Mary Sue. If there's no character arc within the hero, God, as Christine Hayes writes, has a character arc in the Bible. He learns about mankind. Uh, he grows and develops and, and learns about his creation, who he himself cannot predict. That, that's the story of the Bible. God is the hero, but he has a character arc. He grows and develops as time goes on within the Bible. And I'll repeat that because it's extremely important to understanding this passage. God, not man, God is always the hero. He is the protagonist, never a man. So what does that mean for us? 
Okay, what about the Book of Esther? I he doesn't God actually doesn't even appear in the Book of Esther. So I guess he's still the hero of that story. I guess uh, the argument has to be something like uh, in my debate, uh, Dan, Dan and Dane. I think that was one of their examples they used was Esther. They're like, see, this is God working all things together. He's not even mentioned the story, and this is all God. It's like I I guess that's maybe perhaps. Um, but it's not explicitly stated. It's very speculative. But sure, God's the hero. If I read this passage focusing on Moses and what Moses did and Moses as the protagonist, then I would have to agree with my friend. This sounds like an open theism would answer the questions best because it seems like Moses does something and God responds and changes his mind because Moses makes such a good plea. If my focus is on a man, <laughs> if my focus is on where it should be. Okay, we could cut Moses out of the story and just read all the sentences about God, about God's wrath and God not doing what God said he's going to do. If we just focus on the statements about God, that's all open theism. It's it's not like the, mat, the text magically flips and uh, is not open theist. If you focus on God, it's it, that's that's not what's happening. This This is... This is weird. This is like if I if I just say a bunch of words and it doesn't have any relation to the text, but it, it sounds nice, like God is the hero, therefore open theism is false. It's like if, if you just make a bunch of assertions, then, then apparently, apparently the text means open theism is false and uh, whatever alternative is true. The actual hero of this story, God, who plays himself, by the way, in this story then my perspective and the outcome is totally different because if God is the focus, then he didn't do this on accident. He didn't say what he said on accident. He said it on purpose. He didn't respond to Moses on accident. So Ed, here, here's, here's what's going on. If God is the hero of the story, then um, God doesn't have anything, whatever I consider a flaw. And it'd be a flaw if God didn't know something and actually changed his mind based on outside input. Like, like, is there any hero of any story who doesn't actually respond to input? That's, that's the opposite of what a hero does. Um, um, then God's just lying to manipulate people. Like, Moses, I said I destroyed these people. I had no intention of actually destroying them. I just kind of said that. So then you'd go through this little facade of praying to me and you know the people don't actually repent so it's not like i'm changing my mind based on the people's repentance i am changing my mind based on your intercessory prayer but it's i'm just i'm just playing with you moses i'm just playing with you you just you know just pretending that your prayers are effectual but they're not really that that that's the mindset if god is the hero of the story god can't receive outside input and change his plans in mind accordingly that what that's not an argument this this is not an argument literally a hero is the opposite of that literally a hero responds to changing circumstances he did it on purpose i would challenge you go look at um <clears throat> I, I have written in my footnotes here isaiah 65:24 isaiah 65:24 states that god answers prayer before they are prayed yeah, so yeah, then the open theist wouldn't disagree with that. And uh, Paul actually talks about a mechanism within Romans 8. The Spirit searches us and communicates that information to God so that God knows what we need, 
before we ask him for it. And so if God's gaining this information, that means open theism is true, not false. So in, in which way does God answer our prayers before they're prayed? Is it this access to unmitigated propositional truth value eternally in a singularity in which all things are eternally determined from the, uh, the start of the universe or time eternal? Is, is, that, is that what Isaiah 65, 42? I'm not even having, uh, I've not, I've not turned there. So I doubt this is a direct quote. I doubt uh, Isaiah 65, 24 says that explicitly, but we'll just assume it does. Is that what it's describing, his theology, and is it describing open theism is false, or else is this, is this just like massive projection? Oh, well, if open theists don't agree with this verse, it's like, it's again, the William Lane Craig, James White debate, in which James White thinks he's got a gotcha by just uh, quoting the episode of Joseph, and William Lane Craig, all he has to do is say, that proves my view is true. That's, that, that's my view. I, it's, it's not a proof text for your view and it gets by that that's literally a proof text for my view if god responds to our needs if god gains from outside himself open theism is true if god answers prayers if god answers prayers what's an answer it's a response to something if god answers prayers open theism is true so we'll, we'll just we'll just grant it isaiah 40 or 65 24 says that god answers prayers yes response of god means open theism is true and that even while they're yet speaking them, he's hearing them. But the key is that God answers the prayers before they even occur. So we put all that focus on what Moses prayed, but the Bible already teaches us that God was already answering that. Yeah, and David writes, uh, there are passages that say, you have not because you ask not, and which implies that we affect the outcome. So yeah, so you don't want to like proof text. So you don't want to have someone say, oh, God answers prayers before we pray them. And then saying, someone saying, hey, this verse over here says uh, you, you don't have because you haven't asked and therefore this conflicts with this. And so, you know, this one trumps this or anything like that. Each of them are contextual. So you have to go look at contextually what each is saying in its individual context and then then work it out. Not like one trumps the other. And probably the easiest explanation is, yeah, God God does respond to prayers uh, even before we ask those prayers. And also sometimes because these rules within the Bible, they're, they're, not, they're not metaphysical absolutes. He wants to turn to a text in 1 Samuel 15 and say, see this little phrase? This is a metaphysical absolute. This is a property of the universe that God cannot repent. And uh, if God was to violate this rule, he would cease being God and and uh, like the Narnia stone tablet would crack or something like that. The universe would collapse into itself into a black hole if God violated this metaphysical rule. How about how about general rules? You know, um, my my girl never changes her mind because she, she's a stubborn girl. It's a general rule of thumb that uh, explains a characteristic, a character trait, because God is a character. God is a person. It's a general rule of thumb that explains the character trait of a person. General rule of thumb, it's not a metaphysical absolute. It's not a, uh, it's not a rule written into the metaverse that God cannot violate because this is, this is some sort of uh, you know, uh, fundamental facet of reality. It, it's, it's always funny when people come to the Bible and they think the Bible is talking about metaphysics. They'll find a phrase and say, see, this is describing the inner workings of the universe. I don't think it's about that. 
I don't think any of the writers thought in those terms. I don't, I don't think that they're trying to write you a rule book of metaphysical absolutes and metaphysical laws that are in the ether. They're not doing that. No one's, no one's doing that. They're just writing like normal people with normal concepts. Prayer before Moses ever said a word. So how could he be doing that response to Moses? Because he was doing it before Moses. Another one of those issues that we have to talk about. Here's what I think on this passage. <clears throat> if my focus is that God is for God and God is the hero of this story and that God had a purpose in recording it, he had actually... So notice how he's laying out his hermeneutics. I got all these presumptions, presuppositions about God and they have to control the narrative. That is... Some open theists do this. Yeah, some open theists do that where they have presuppositions about God. They say God is love and that means these things. And so all the texts need to be reread in this light. This is uh, like the Greg Boyd cruciform hermeneutic. Yeah, okay. So open theists sometimes do that. Uh, he does it. I try not to do that. I try to say, hey, let's. Uh, what if we took someone who knew nothing about the Bible and then they read the Bible and what would they say about God? That's probably the default position of what the Bible's actually arguing. Again, these are the, the people who wrote the Bible, they're not like Greek metaphysics scholars. This is an ancient Semite religion talking about an ancient Semitic God, Yahweh, and, and, and how do they interact with him? And what do we read when we're reading these stories about their interaction with them? Is it this platonic nothingness, singularity? I, I don't see that at all. It's just not there. It's it's If I wasn't a Christian, I would not read the Bible and say, these guys might have been Calvinists. It wouldn't even be a possible. It's not even on the radar. It's, it's not there. It's not, oh, God had this type of uh, abstract knowledge of innate uh, propositional access to all. No, no one thought like that. It's just. This is not in the text. Several purposes. Number one, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that one major purpose this happened is that God wanted it to be future examples for us. God wanted these things recorded. And so I would challenge you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and, and research, do a little reading and, and understanding there. God wanted these things recorded so that they would be examples for us. Yeah. So the Hebrews had a cyclical mindset that as things happen in the past, they happen again in the future. And that's why you get these Matthew-fulfilled prophecies where you turn back to his Old Testament reference, and they, they're not prophecies. They're, he's actually using fulfillment in the sense of history is repeating itself, that this, this predates or predicates this new event, which points to the truth of this new event. It's a cyclical view of time, a, a cyclical view of events that we, we need to be somewhat familiar with because we don't think this way at all. We don't think, oh yeah, this World War I is going to repeat itself. There's going to be a Kaiser of Germany. I, yeah, probably not. Probably we, we, we think more of, of time as linear and not cyclical. So we do have to consider the, the culture we're looking back into and how they viewed events, what they mean by fulfillment of events, what they mean when they use this type of language, that these things are written so that he doesn't actually turn to the verses and read them. So that's, that is a shame. So that's one reason why God had these recorded. Second reason, probably actually first primary reason, but second in order of me saying them, is that God is for his glory. This 
glorifies God in this story. And let me explain how. We have to remember who is Moses. I'll explain real quick how it glorifies God. Because Moses argues, if you kill Israel, all the Egyptians will see that you just let all your people out in the wilderness and you killed them all. It will look really, really bad. And God said, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good point. I'm not going to do it for my name's sake. I'm going to change my mind. And this is reiterated in Ezekiel looking back. And God says, I changed my mind for my own name's sake. That's why God changes his mind. Because God does care about his public perception. Because God benefits, God gains from outside himself. God cares about public perception and it affects him. Outside creation affects him. He's relational. Open theism is true. He's a type of Christ. We know this from the beginning. Both of them were born Jewish men, born in captivity, Egypt for Moses, Rome for Christ. So just again, just notice this uh, line of argumentation. If Moses is a type of Christ, then Exodus 32 can't be teaching open theism, and then his theology is right and open theism is wrong. It doesn't logically follow. He, he's not actually making an argument. He's talking about a text with standard talking points that might sound nice, but it doesn't line up. It doesn't bolster his argument. It doesn't actually give him ammunition to support the claims that he's making. It's it's more of this idea of if I talk long enough and in detail enough about the subject over here on my uh, right hand, then over here on my left hand, you might uh, agree with my claims about open theism over here on my left hand. The two actually aren't related. And so, yeah, all these things might be true. This might make for a great story, make, make for a great sermon, but it's not about open theism. You're not, you're not showing why this is a text that's not teaching open theism with these claims. Both of them, as a young child, had kings seek their life. Obviously, Moses was hidden in the, the Nile. Jesus was taken down to Egypt to escape Herod. Both of them grew yeah, P.T.I. Douglas says, sounds like God made Moses into the hero. Moses was reluctant. He didn't want to do it. He's like, I'm an old dude. I can't talk. And then God gets angry at him. And then he actually uh, says, fine, fine, whatever. I, I give up. I give up. Aaron's going to go be your voice instead of you. You know, I had chosen you to do it, but whatever. I'm sending Aaron instead. Like, he gets mad at him. He gets he gets mad at him. And so Moses is this reluctant hero. And the, and the whole narrative. So Exodus 2, Exodus uh, 2 through 4. That's within context of Exodus 32. It's in the same book. It's it's precursor to the events in Exodus 32. You see you see Moses's character development, and a lot of these stories within Exodus rely on events that have happened previously. It's not like we're turning to I don't know some verse in like Malachi or Samuel or something like that, and then trying to use that to to control what's happening in Exodus 32. This is Exodus 32. God's tumultuous relationship with Moses, this reluctant man who's doing God's prophecy, who doesn't want to be there and uh, doesn't, if, if you read about who Moses was and all his actions and his thought, it's, it's, he's, he's not like this holier than thou guy. It's not like, it's not like uh, the history channel Bible miniseries where he's this happy go lucky guy. I'm off to do God's will. Do, 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 do. He's not like that. He's, he's, he's reluctant and, and he's a, he presses against God. He doesn't seem like a very heroic guy in context. He's, he's just there pressing against God throughout the text. But God loves him anyways. God loves him. 
God, I, and it's hard to know why reading the text, reading about Moses's character. In education, we see Jesus learning in the temple at a young man's age, answering and asking questions that they were astounded by. Moses growing up in the court of Pharaoh with the best education he could ever have uh, for that time period. Both of them spending time in the wilderness preparing for ministry. Um, we see Moses obviously in the backside of the desert for 40 years. We see Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days fasting um, <clears throat> in before he really starts his ministry. Both of these men play physical and spiritual leader of the Jews. Moses, obviously, in delivering the Jews out of Egypt. Christ in his future kingdom, where he will come back as the conquering king who sets up his kingdom, where he is the spiritual and physical leader. These are a type. How about, how about this type? Um, Moses didn't want to do God's will, and Jesus didn't want to do God's will, but both of them ceded uh, their will to God's will. And may, maybe that's a type too. We could consider that. I don't know. Maybe if I was a rhetorician, I'd work that into a sermon. Again, you know, that's kind of like speculative and probably not the parallel that the Bible's going for, but it is one you can make. So when we look at this story, this narrative, God the Father plays himself because nobody's going to play him, not even Morgan Freeman, which... You know, he's a close second, but no one is going to play God but himself. He's not going to share that title with anyone. Moses plays the role of Christ. The Israelites, the nations were in this specific. Grant everything he says. Does that mean open theism is false and whatever his claims about the text is true? And, and that's why I ask him up there. It's like uh, you're speaking as if these events were not to be taken literally. Is that is that what everyone else is hearing? That. You know, um, these events happen here, but let me talk about typography and who Moses is, and he's a type of Christ. Are, are you saying these events didn't happen? So how is this relevant to whether or not this passage is about open theism? Unless your claim is that if it's typology, then the events didn't actually happen as described. That, that's, that's the conclusion I'm walking away with, because he's framing this in the context of proving open theism is false. Example, the nation of Israel. And we see this, that God's justice, God had a just reason to destroy them, just as he has a just reason to destroy me. <laughs> I am a sinner. That's what we have to understand. Is Not everyone in the Bible is described as a sinner. There's always, always a, a contingent of the righteous. There's a generation of the righteous. Uh, there's people who don't deserve to die. And God says, will you profane me for pieces of barley? saving alive people who should die and then uh, killing those who sh or should live. You know, not everyone deserves to die in the Bible. This is this, this uh, ant theology. Oh, woe is me. I'm the worst in the world. Everyone deserves death. It's, uh, uh, okay. Because our proper perspective needs to be that I'm that I'm the Israelites. I'm the sinner. I'm not Moses. The problem is we always want to read ourselves into Moses's shoes. We want to be Moses. We uh, uh, go, read the life of Moses. I do not want to be Moses. I do not want to be Ezekiel. I do not want to be Jeremiah, King David, maybe, but it, it's kind of, it's kind of rough there. I'd rather be me than King David. Solomon. Well, maybe you're getting up there. So, you know, it's make probably uh quality of life. You're getting a little bit better with Solomon over, over, over David, but I don't want to be these people. It's, I, I don't want to be Moses. That's not a good time. 
Uh, you, you don't. I, I don't want to wander in a wilderness for forty years. I don't want to rely on eating the same thing day out. It's, I don't. I don't want it. I don't want it, my friend. We want to be the guy that stands up and does this mighty act, and God hears us, and blah blah blah. No, we're the Israelites. We're the 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 dirty wretches that keep messing up. Moses is a type of Christ. You can't be that. That's not a that's not a role you get to play. Christ made the intercession for us, just as Moses interceded with God. This story has nothing to do with what God does or doesn't know. It has everything to do with the gospel being presented all the way back in Acts. Yeah, PTI says, Moses almost got killed for not circumcising his son. I never, I never want to circumcise a single son like myself. Maybe I'll give someone money to do it for me, but I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to... I, I don't want to describe the process because it's, I don't want to do it. It's, it's not something I, Moses's life is not a life I want to live. Maybe, may, maybe, maybe King Solomon within the Bible, but, uh, uh, uh Abraham, maybe, uh, maybe, Abraham, uh, he's, he's got some hard times too. I, I just, it, it's hard. Exodus, that God, his justice, his wrath, his indignation should be poured out on us. It should be poured out on us. But Christ stood in the middle and said, no, take me instead. Yeah. So if we're deserving of death and if Christ stands in the middle and Moses is a type of Christ, then Exodus 32 is not about open theism, not teaching open theism and instead teaching his theology. These are disconnects. They, they, it's, it, his arguments uh, don't follow to his conclusion. His conclusion is not based on his arguments. He's let me talk a bunch. If I talk a bunch, then you'll say, oh, all those things sound good. Also, I say open theism is false and not taught in Exodus 32. And so you just accept those things too. So just this, this, is, this is a common preaching tactic. You just watch how pre people teach. It's not on point. It's let me go off of, and you know, side tangents are okay, but it, it does, it's not actually a logical argument. This is not an argument. He's not making an argument. He's making a, a bunch of assertions that are unrelated to his primary assertion. And he made intercession for us. That's what this story is about. The reason that this is in the Bible is because this is the gospel clearly laid out all the way back in the Pentateuch so that Israel all the way along their history had a clear, clear picture of redemption that their Messiah would come. We see Moses show up on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus meets with him. There. He's got good passion. He's got good cadence. Uh, he talks very well and articulately, but, but the fact is nothing he's saying is an argument. I, you know, so he's, he's a good preacher. He's a good preacher. He seems like a nice guy. He seems very charismatic. It's not on topic. It's not, it's not showing open theism is false. There, along with Elijah, this is a type. He was the redeemer of the people. That's why this is here. It's here to be an example for us because we're the Israelites. We're the dirty wretches that deserve God's damnation. But we didn't get it. And that's the point of the story, too, is that even though they deserved it, God was merciful to them. The focus is not about what God does. If God shows mercy, open theism is true because God is interacting with the world outside himself. If God shows mercy, open theism is true. If, 
The alternative to open theism is closed theism, which God is not an agent. God has no agency. God has no volition. God is uh, the singularity that doesn't receive from outside himself is unchangeable and timeless and 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 indescribable. He he, there's there's no difference between nothingness and God, which is actually pretty interesting because on Facebook, um, someone was saying, "Oh, free will is that something arises from nothing." It's like, well, you you believe that God is nothingness, and they're like, "Yes, I do. I'm so proud of my belief that God is nothingness." I'm like, okay, well, I guess. I guess it's absurd that free will is that agency arise from nothingness, but God is nothingness in your view. I, I guess that, I guess it works uh, to each their own. Us or doesn't know the focus is on what God is going to do to be merciful to people who had no right to it. Christopher writes, this guy's not an actor. Actors are trained to believe what they say. I, I, I think this guy, uh, he's trained to believe what they say or actors don't believe what they say. I think this guy's a true believer in the things he's saying. I think he thinks that these are actual arguments. I think he thinks he's making constructive constructive points against open theism. Uh, he's he, They learned it from Piper. Yeah, so he, he's been trained. I don't know if this guy knows anything about Piper. Oh, I, oh he, he, did, he did quote Matt Chandler, who has some relation with Piper or something like that. He says he's not a Calvinist like Chandler is. A lot of it is just repeating talking points. It's not independent processing of information, which is actually really funny. I was reading a thread in which um, there's a guy named Molberg. Uh, he's fairly famous and uh, he it's, it's about Iran. So if you put in uh, Mol, Molbug and Iranian, you'll pull up this thread in which he's dealing with a bunch of hostile people who are coming to him from the standard talking points of academia. You know, the civil war is about slavery. I guess tangentially it's about slavery, but the South was fighting it because they actually saw the federal government imposing itself. And uh, like one of their common things was, Slavery was the occasion for war, but not the cause. It was going to be fought about something. And the North, they, they hated slaves. Um, and I've been, I was reading uh, slave narratives. There's a bunch of interviews with the slaves that uh, came out in like uh, the 1930s of people recollecting about slavery. And these Union soldiers would come to the farm. They would shoot slaves who didn't want to come back to the Union camp with them. They were bad people. Uh, the, the North wasn't, they weren't fighting a moral crusade and the South wasn't fighting a, a moral crusade except for their, their state rights. It, was, it wasn't, uh, slavery was tangential, but, but, but that's the academia narrative that you learn, you learn in high school, the civil war was about slavery. Yeah, I, I guess, but, but uh, that's what he's doing here. He's, I got this narrative. It's been handed down to me. It's been blessed by the powers that be. Let me repeat that narrative to my audience. And uh, it perpetuates this narrative. And then they don't actually know how to interact with people who come from a different narrative, who, who provide thoughts and inputs that they haven't considered before. Has he ever considered that the fact that God is jealous means open theism is true? He's never considered this. Um, I, I didn't actually press him on this point. I pressed him on three. I, you don't know, actually, you know, I could do a whole hour and 15 minutes so far response to him. 
So you want to try to consolidate your actual written responses to a few points. I, I tried to limit myself to three different points, which is probably still too much. I probably should have focused it, that down a little bit. But my, my main points to him was the heroes in the story have character arcs. God has a character arc within the Bible. He's the hero. Um, you don't sound like you actually believe that these events happen. Can you clarify? I don't really get I don't really get a clarification that he thinks that these events literally happened or not. I don't know. I, I assume he thinks that they're literal, but then he has to jive with open theist read with his views, which he doesn't want to address. And uh, the third point was that McKinnis, the McKinnis point that I pointed out. And the point of posting that was to get him to self-reflect that the very arguments he's making is red-pilling red -pilling third parties. They're seeing how bad these arguments are and how disingenuous these arguments are and uh, how credentialed the speakers are. And they're learning about the world that people are pundits and not theologians. They don't care about the truth. They're, they care about their pundit tree. And so that, that should give him pause to reflect on what he says and why he says that. If, if, he, if he actually cares about actual pursuit of the truth, it should give him pause. It should make him self-reflect. But yeah, whether that happens or not, you know, you could, you could lead a horse to water. Yeah, they, they did not deserve it. But God was merciful for them. And Moses played the intercessory role. He played a role. But make no mistake. Christopher Greer points out that, yeah, kind of the same thing happened in the in the James White uh, Paulman, David Paulman discussion or interaction that we covered yesterday. Was it yesterday? I guess we're doing two days in a row. I don't know. Who is the hero in the story? God. And God is showing us his glory. He's showing us his mercy. He's showing us his grace and his love, his redemptive plan kept secret since the world began. We know this. The problem is we don't like it because <laughs> it means God's keeping secrets from us. And for whatever. Uh, personally, I, I do not care. I do not care. People, people are like, oh, uh, you have this. Uh, ulterior motive that you want such and such to be true. I, I literally don't care. I, I, I have no motivation one way or the other. Do not care. And so um, they, they always have to assume motive. Some people have motives for the things they believe. I don't feel like I do. I could care less. If, if this whole text was not about God repenting at all, I, I, my life would be like no different. For reason, we think that that's not okay for God to do. For example, Sodom. David writes, what do you mean by we? Yeah, absolutely. It could be a projection where uh, he he kind of inside knows that he does this to God, that God's whatever he wants and whatever he feels. And so he has to project it to his opponents, his critics. Again, I, I don't think I'm like an overly emotional dude, so I, I don't think the criticism's accurate. I mean, Gomorrah, similar situation. God says, I'm going to destroy, or Nineveh, sorry. God says, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. Jonah goes there. They repent in sackcloth and ashes, and God spares them. Again, the yeah, the text says that God did not do what God said he would do. And so the, the question is, is that true or is that not true? You can't just like quote more open theist proof texts and then just assume your side is true. You, you see it. it. It's it's really funny. Uh, I was just telling uh, what, Will Duffy the other day, yesterday, today, I don't know. I was telling him about that time that Matt Slick did that to me. He's like, of course, Genesis 22 mean 
uh, God knows everything going on or whatever in Sodom. Because over here in Genesis 3, it doesn't look like God knows what's going on in the garden. Like, that's not an argument. Pointing out more potential proof texts for my point is not an argument. Now, now you have two problems. You have to explain why Genesis 22 means your theology. And now you have to explain why Genesis 3 means your theology. You're just multiplying your issues. It doesn't mean you're right and I'm wrong. It means I got more evidence for my side that you're identifying. Now you have to deal with that evidence. It's, it's crazy. The purpose isn't that God lied. God wanted to give a reason. He told Jonah, look. He, he was teaching Jonah a lesson, and by extension, he was teaching us a lesson. Look, you care more about this stupid plant than you do about all those people, those humans that I love, that I care about. That, yes, it's a, it's a lesson. Uh, it's particularly, Jonah is a lesson to Israel about God's acceptance of outsiders who and God's love of people who are not national Israel. And so it, it's an object lesson about God's love, God's repentance, God's willingness to entertain outsiders. It's a it's an anti it's an anti anti foreign an anti xenophobic uh, treatise for Israel about God's relationship with non Israelites, teaching them about who God is. Yes, all that is true. It's not about God not knowing something. That's just part of the story that's literally in the text and described explicitly. So the question is: um, Number one, did the events happen as described? Number two, uh, do they describe accurately what the author wants to communicate to his audience about God's character, nature, personality? Are those are those things true? What is it communicating to who? And it's not if we have an explanation of what's going on here, that means it doesn't teach open theism. No, often it's teaching open theism because they're all open theists, and that's a tangential point. The open theism is tangential to a main point. And often that main point is synonymous with open theism. God has mercy. Yeah, open theism is true. God grieves when we sin. Yeah, that means open theism is true. God responds to prayer. Yep, that's that's open theism. That's what open theism teaches and only open theism. Only open theism teaches God responds to prayer. Of course, they'll claim it, but they don't actually mean that God responds to prayer when you press them on the definitions of the words. They're what matter, and you only care about the stupid plant, Jonah. Yeah, yeah, big pouty baby. And that's what God's saying to us, and that's what's happening exactly in this passage. We're so concerned with the detail that Moses prayed and God did something, but the Bible clearly tells us it wasn't about his prayer because God answered that prayer before he even prayed it. And I know we could we could fight about that, but the perspective has to be where it needs to be. It's on God. God is showing us that he loves us, cares about us, that this is redemption. God cares about us. Open theism is true. God is gaining from outside himself. All the way back there. And we as humans, we're, we're very humanistic. We want to read ourselves into this. We want to be Moses. I don't want to be Moses. <laughs> we want to pray to God and God change all our circumstances, all the bad. Yes, we want God to respond to prayer. Yes. Things go away. That's not the point of this. The point is that no matter what happens, God is in control. He knows what he's doing. That's the point of Exodus 32. That God is con in control and God knows what he's doing. I don't think that's the point of Exodus 32. That's that's a very weird lesson to take from this passage. It's not what's going on there. It's not what's being depicted. And it's not, especially it's not what future authors of the Bible look back in Exodus 32. And that's not their takeaway. Their takeaway is Moses was effectual at changing the mind of God for the explicit reason 
that uh, the, the reason Moses gave that God would look bad in the eyes of his enemies. Explicitly, it, within the Bible, they look back on this event and that's how they read it. They read it as open theism. This is open theism. Again, open theism is tangential to the text, but they're all open theists. So you're going to find open theism in the text regardless of of what their primary purpose is. This is not unlike God to keep secrets from us. Look at the dispensation of grace. The church kept secrets since before the world began. Christopher Greer writes, I can tell he's rightly dividing the scripture by his hands. He actually has fantastic uh, motion controls with his hands. Uh, very, very good gestation and articulation to emphasize his points. So he's a very effective teacher. Again, I understand why people like him. Oh, he's a charismatic guy. He's got passion. People people love passion in speeches. So at, so at uh, my church I started going to, we got a very passionate preacher. I don't know if the guy's a Calvinist or a Midian. I, I literally do not know. I've been going there for like over a year. I have no idea this guy's doctrinal beliefs. But every, every sermon is like a fiery, impassioned uh, speech. I said, boys, watch, watch what this guy does. You don't, you don't have to look at the content as much as how he delivers, how he speaks. He's able to draw audience. He's able to draw people in due to his charisma. Watch, watch his charismatic elements and emulate, emulate. I, again, I don't know the guy's doctored. I, he's, he's just an emotional, charismatic type of speaker. And, you know, what kind of substance is there? A lot of it's practical advice, which is okay for churches because most people live in the practical world and not in the doctrinal world. And that's fine for a church, but but take note of charismatic people, how they act and how they behave. And just understand that and don't confuse their charisma with the actual in intellectual arguments. Again, why? The Bible tells us why. The Bible says that if God didn't keep it a secret, if he didn't keep it a secret, he knew that Satan and his minions would have never allowed Pontius Pilate to crucify Christ. They never would have allowed it. They would have made sure Jesus didn't die. But they willingly followed right along with God's plan because they thought they were winning. This goes right back to Genesis that, that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he would crush his head. Just grant everything he says is true. That doesn't mean that Exodus 32 is not teaching open theism. Doesn't mean it. That's Christ. That's what's going on in this passage is this is pro granting people's points is actually a really funny thing to do in debates. Uh, even if you don't agree with the point, you just say for the sake of this debate, I'll grant that point. But this that just they, they just gave a huge long speech. And then you just say you're basically hand waving it and saying all that's irrelevant to the you don't have to debate every single thing you disagree with someone on. Uh, you don't want to actually allow people to sidetrack debates and conversations. And so saying, let's just, for the sake of this debate, we'll grant all of that. It's irrelevant. And this is why. And it's 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 a funny thing to do. They just wasted all their time in the debate on some sort of tangential thing. And then you just hand wave it. It's fantastic. Prophecy. This is God knowing exactly what's going to happen. And me just having to put my faith in him. The, the unfortunate part is that me as a human, I'm kind of an arrogant stuck up prick. It's true. I want God to tell me all the truth. I want it. I want it now. God should have told me that this was a contingency that he may only consume. Oh, wait, it does say may, but I should have. Yeah, it's an, it's a, it's a future tense thing. So uh, yeah, I, yeah, do this. He says, go away so that I may destroy Israel. Like, uh, 
telling my kids, uh, everyone get your coats on so that we we could go, we can go or may go to McDonald's, something like that. It's a future tense thing. So it's it's in this in this kind of conditional type of clause. That doesn't mean he wasn't planning on doing it or that uh, it's just like, oh, I may do it. That's it's not what's going on in the story. He has great wrath, his great, great anger, and he's trying to get Moses the heck away from him so that he doesn't have any opposition to destroying Israel. He doesn't want Moses interceding. He's like, get the heck away from me. I'm just going to kill these people. I don't need to hear from you. I don't need your input today. Of all the details, God should have told me that this was contingent on whether or not they repented. He should have told me that. Well, why? Why should he tell me? And so notice this kind of weird hallucination that the open theist um, claim is that God needs to make explicit his conditionals if there are conditionals. That, that doesn't seem to be a claim any open theist actually makes or or that this passage can't be conditional no matter what. Or it, it actually, you just you have to look at the context of anything that's happening. What's happening? What's the character motivations? Um, what, what are the turn of events? This is a story. It has rising action. It has falling action. It has twists. It has turns. It has uh, repentances. It has a character arc, character development as things that happen. So we just got to watch those changes and just like a good literary critic, understand character motivations based on circumstances. And we're let into character motivations. Unless, of course, you can make the argument that just God is just lying. Uh, God has no no plans or intents to do this. It's all a facade. I guess, yes, that is a reading you can have. I don't think it's a probable reading. I don't think it's the best reading, but you can have that. Go for it. Me that. Why does God owe me all the information? He doesn't. This is not in disingenuous of God. And that's what a lot of people would maybe uh, accuse God of disingenuousness, which I would be very cautious about accusing God of things like lying. This is not. So it's only a lie if open theism is false. If open theism is false, then God would be lying if he says that he plans on doing th something, he thinks he's going to do something, and then doesn't do that thing. So open theists don't think God is lying here. Um, I, th I think one of his concerns is pretend Arminianism is true. Now you're saying that if God said something he's going to do with full knowledge that he's not going to do something, it would be dangerous to call God a liar. Well, I, it, it, if, if it quacks like a duck, it might be a duck. God, God probably could be easily classified as a liar if he says the opposite of what he plans to do and says that it's, it's something that he plans to do. Disingenuous. God does not owe you all the answers. God does not owe me the full explanation. If God says, I may consume them, he may consume them. That is very true. He may do that, but he also may not. And he doesn't have to tell me that. He is at no obligation. It's a, it's a if then else clause. Get away from me so that I may destroy them. So get you out of the picture. Now this conditional clause takes effect. To tell me anything let alone everything. And we see this all throughout the Bible. We see that in Revelation where John goes to write something. Now, ho, 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 don't write that. Keep that one a secret. God keeps secrets all the time. He also reveals secrets all the time. We need to be careful that just because something's not recorded doesn't mean that God is somehow bound 
to what I think he should do. Yeah, so open theists, we're the ones who actually take literally Jeremiah 18, where God says that if circumstances change, then God will not do what he said he's going to do and not do what he thought he was going to do. So open theists implicitly understand that all prophecy includes conditionals based on circumstances, that this is God's modus operandi. Their theology is very selective. If God says something's going to happen and then that thing doesn't happen, oh, there must have been a secret conditional. But if God says something's going to happen and that thing happens, there was never any conditional. Why? If you, you can't possibly believe that that's conditional. If you believe that's conditional and it's not explicitly a conditional, ah, oh, you're the worst person ever. If if uh, if the rooster crowed twice and then he did it, if the rooster did quote, quote, crow at all, if if uh, the Peter's denials of Christ didn't happen, oh, then his Godhead would be undone. They're the ones who don't believe in implicit conditionals. Open theism believes that God responds to responds to changing circumstances. Open theism is is the view. Uh, he's, he's confusing it with his own view. He's saying our view has the implicit conditionals. No, conditionals are based on context. What God says, what God does, it's described in context. We, we, it's not like guesswork. We're not, we don't have to just, you know, sometimes in the Bible, it's guesswork to try to get into the mind of God to see what God was thinking. Like, like in Genesis three, where God says, um, where are you, Adam? There, we don't have a we don't have a introspective reflection of God about what His purpose in saying that question was. Whether it was to gain information, whether it's a known answer question, whether it's something else, we we don't have that sort of self reflection. But we do have self reflections in other texts, such as Genesis six, where we're given a thought, a snapshot into God's mind. How about in First Samuel fifteen, we're given a snapshot into God's mind. Here, we're given a snapshot into God's mind based on God's dialogue, which is about himself. God is communicating about himself to other creatures. Do we accept that communication as accurate? Do we not accept that communication? Does, does he have wrath? Does he have fierce wrath that needs to be turned away? Did God repent of what God said he was going to do? It, it, did that happen? And we need to see the Bible for what it really is. This is a revelation of God to us. This is for his glory for his honor and 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 back to that major major principle god not man god not moses is the hero of this story yes and heroes have uh, arcs character arcs and god has a character arc this is god revealing his mercy his grace his love and his redemption to his people that's so let's quote uh, i'm going to quote the christine hayes passage that i i pulled out because it, it's a fairly accurate description of God within the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament explicitly. And then even in the New Testament, you get character development in God. So the Garden of Eden story contains a narrative feature that will reoccur in the Pentateuch. Yahweh's recalibration in the light of human activity. Following the creation, Yahweh has to punt a bit. He modifies his plans for the first couple barring access to the tree of life in response to their unforeseen disobedience. Despite their new mortality, humans are nevertheless a force to be reckoned with, unpredictable to the very God who created him. Christine Hayes, not a Christian. This is a secular source. Uh, not a, She doesn't have a dog in the fight. It's not like, oh, she's out to disprove Calvinism. She's she's a biblical Hebrew scholar. There's There's other Hebrew scholars out there. People like John Day, who specialize in ancient Near East religions, 
None of them think that the Bible's teaching Calvinism. These 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 most neutral, yet they're not Christians, and so they might have things against Christianity, but they they don't think that it's teaching this abstract theology that he thinks needs to be implicit in all these texts. That's what this passage is about. And we need to keep the focus where it needs to be. Does this answer every question on this passage? No, it doesn't. Do we need to obviously work out some few more things? Sure. But that's what I'm hoping discussion will go forward is that, <clears throat> and, and I hope you don't misunderstand my passion for this. I, I get very passionate and I speak loud and I speak fast, but it's because I'm passionate about this. Theology. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know if he actually is inviting dialogue or if that was disingenuous because I, I did dialogue. I, I don't think I insulted him at all. I just made factual statements. And, you know, I guess if you just make factual statements without like flowery, like if you write an email that just says, ah, these are some facts, people will be like, this guy is really mean. He has to flower it up with, I love you. Oh, also, let's talk about these facts. It's like, ah. So just stating facts and trying to dialogue, I guess, I guess it doesn't, not the best tact, but uh, he wasn't very happy with me after these interactions. He's, uh, <laughs> and, and he said, oh, I perceive that you're not interested or something like that. And I said, have you ever considered your perception of this conversation is incorrect? Uh, have you, have you considered maybe your perceptions of this interaction are false? He says, I'm sorry to read this. It seems like you're not gracious enough to accept my apology. My previous comment was, it's not about apologies. What are you apologizing for? Why, why are we having apologies in the middle of conversations? He's apologizing for, um, I said he's proof texting. And then he's like, oh, I'm not proof texting. I'm framing. I was like, well, look at these quotes from your video. That and it's, and it's, it's literally proof texting. It's like, I, I guess you apologize for that, but it doesn't stop the fact that that was definitely a proof texting saying we know god doesn't repent because of 1 samuel 15 and so let's go back and read exodus 32 and, and god can't be repenting there that's proof texting that, that that's what it is it's it's not reframing is the most important thing you can study in the bible and i say that unashamedly because god is ultimately for his glory theology is number one you cannot yeah, grown men typically I shouldn't apologize. I it's you know, just say, oh, you, you could say, Oh, I was wrong here. Um, I'm sorry that was proof texting. Um, I won't do it again. But just saying, I apologize for the phrasing that's not actually I I don't know. It I, grown men apologizing. I have a relationship with God if you do not know God. And God wants you to know him. There are whole books of this Bible dedicated to wisdom, knowledge, discernment, understanding. God wants that relationship, but it's a relationship built in understanding and knowledge and discernment. <clears throat> I hope that that was helpful. I hope this uh, fostered a discussion. Again, this isn't against any person. This is against ideas. You know, this is a Is it? Because I asked a bunch of questions. And uh, I didn't get answers to too many of my questions. I asked, uh, you know, did these events literally happen? It's like kind of a non-answer. You know, like people try to answer a question and they, they're they like, how dare you ask that question? <laughs> like, it, it's, I'm, I'm trying to exchange knowledge here. It's, I, I guess, I, I guess I'm, I'm terrible. But uh, anyways, I think it's an interesting video. I don't dislike this guy. He's very charismatic. Uh, he's interesting. Uh, 
he seems to uh, speak well. He's articulate and and uh, he seems like a guy that it would be fun to hang out with. Like James White, it would not be fun to hang out with. This guy would probably be okay. Would probably have a good time. He's he doesn't seem like a bad person, but his arguments are not good arguments. His arguments are not persuasive arguments to someone who's doing like a flow chart of arguments to say, okay, does uh, Exodus 32 teach open theism? What what does his argument list look like? Um, Exodus 32 is typology for Jesus. That's not, you know, I, that, that could, that could be an the open theist, open theist could argue that that's, so it's not like an argument either way. What, what else is his argument that God is the hero? It's like that, that's not like something open theists say no to. And then that means open theism is false. If it's true, that's, uh, we got to read this as a, in a God centric light. Okay. That doesn't, it doesn't mean Exodus 32 is not teaching open theism. And uh, and what's his argument about what the text actually reads? That this is God just doing something to illustrate a principle? I what what in context suggests it? Which which words in the context of the story that we're reading suggest that that's the reading? That this is kind of like play acting, or it's. Uh, it's it's a guiding. It's it's a manipulating Moses to do certain things, presumably so that there's some sort of uh, prefiguration of Jesus. Is that the idea that God's like, okay, I just need to get Jesus prefigured, so I'm just going to kind of manipulate Moses into these actions, and and it'll be a whole scene. It'll be fun. It'll be like a little movie that I designed, and Moses is an unwitting participant. Because Moses doesn't actually know my my true character and who I am. It's not like I appeared to him and had face-to-face conversations or anything. Moses doesn't know that I'm I'm truly this God with uh, this type of knowledge that's innate and, and ungenerated within myself. And so, so because he doesn't have that knowledge and he thinks that I'm an open theistic God, I can manipulate him into certain actions to prefigure Jesus. That's 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 not an explanation that I think is a, a possible one. For this text, I, it, I I just don't think it's there. So I don't think this is a bad guy. Uh, I I don't want him to be mad at me. It's uh, I'm not trying to make enemies or anything, but I don't think his arguments are particularly well thought through. I they they don't mean his arguments are not open theism is false, and this passage doesn't teach open theism. It's it's a lot of dog and pony show. Look at my flashy things I'm saying here. So trust me, open theism is wrong, which I, I guess it's a novel argument. Uh, different people use use that type of trick in different ways. So it, it does have some novelty to it. But ah, anyways, we'll probably end there and uh, cut off. Everyone, thanks for watching. If uh, you want to start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page, there is actually a thread where someone shared this video and uh, you, you can comment on it. So we can all comment on it and talk about it there. All right. Thanks for watching.